It's a hot summer day in 1940, and in Hershey, Pennsylvania, a tour guide's just shown a group of tourists around the town's famous chocolate factory. Thank all of you for coming. I really hope you enjoyed yourselves. Have a wonderful day now. As the rest of the group heads for the gift shop, one man approaches the guide with what seems like a complaint. I want to see the general manager of the company. Um, is there a problem, sir? I imagine Mr. Murray will be busy. Just tell him Forrest Mars is here. Half an hour later, Forrest is in William Murray's office inside the windowless headquarters of the Hershey Chocolate Company. Murray's never met Forrest, but he certainly knows about him and is eager to finally talk with him. Forrest inherited a third of the Mars Company when his father died in 1934, and every year the Snickers manufacturer buys huge amounts of Hershey's chocolate. Pleasure to meet you, Forrest. May I say how sorry I was when your father passed away? I must have missed you at the funeral. I wasn't there. Tell me, what's your son Bruce do now? Bruce? Um, he, he's an investment banker. On Wall Street. What a waste. Any fool can add and subtract. He'll learn nothing there. Real business is about product. Murray's not sure what to say to that. And before he can reply, Forrest pulls a scrunched-up handkerchief from his pocket and opens it to reveal a bunch of small candies. They look like tiny rainbow-colored pebbles. They've been in my pocket since New Jersey. Try one. Murray pops a red one into his mouth and bites. The candy shell cracks, releasing the milk chocolate inside. They're, they're chocolate. Chocolates that don't melt. Forrest smiles. It's time to reel Murray in. I'm starting a new business, selling these candies. I'm telling you this is the product. It'll be sold worldwide from Miami to Bombay. What I need now is chocolate from Hershey, but I also need a business partner. I was thinking of your son. If Bruce comes in, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll name the company and the candies M&M's for Murray and Mars. What do you think? Murray's flattered. He knows these non-melting chocolates are something special a product that could end the summer dip in chocolate sales. And he also likes the idea of a candy that bears his family name. Well, uh, I think Bruce will jump at this opportunity. Forrest grins. That is exactly what he came for. He's just returned from Europe, and he knows war is coming. And war means supply shortages. With Bruce in his business, Forrest can be sure Murray will do all he can to keep him supplied with chocolate. He knows Murray's got pals in Washington who can help M&Ms win big military contracts. And once the war is over, Forrest can push Bruce out and take back control. It's a trap, and Murray's just walked into it. Hook, line, and sinker. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars.
On the last episode, Frank Mars used Snickers and Milky Way to turn Mars into America's second biggest candy bar maker, earning millions for himself and his chocolate supplier, Hershey. But Mars and Hershey's peaceful coexistence is about to come under attack. Frank Mars's estranged son, Forrest, is back in America, fresh from building a powerful candy empire in Britain. He's returned with M&M's, a new candy inspired by the British sugar shell chocolates Smarties, and he's out to use them to break into the American market. This is Episode 3, A Candy-Coated Prayer. It's April 1945, and just north of Munich, Germany, a squad of U.S. soldiers is approaching a complex surrounded by electrified fences and barbed wire. The place is unnervingly quiet. The camp's Nazi guards have already fled. The skies are empty of birds. The stench of death and decay hangs in the air. Clouds of flies buzz back and forth. The soldiers edge forward, Rifles raised, ready to fire. A young private from Alabama whispers to his nearest squad mate, You think this is one of them death camps? Dunno, stay alert. The squad move forward, through the gates, and into the courtyard. As they do, the door to a large wooden building slowly starts to open. The soldiers spin around and train their guns on the door. Slowly, a man emerges with his hands in the air. The private's jaw drops. The man looks like a ghost. He's dressed in ragged prison stripes. His head is shaved, and his body is little more than loose skin over bone. Don't shoot! We're prisoners! As the man shuffles forward, others emerge from the building like a procession of phantoms emaciated men, women, and children who have seen and endured unimaginable horrors. As the crowd of prisoners fill the courtyard, the private notices a nine-year-old girl clinging to her grandfather's legs. Instinctively, he reaches into his ration pack and hands her a chocolate bar. A Hershey chocolate bar. Since the U.S. joined World War II, Hershey chocolate bars have been standard issue for U.S. troops fighting the Axis powers. The companies produced more than a billion candy bars for service personnel and earned military awards for its contribution to the war effort. And now that the Third Reich is on its last legs, those chocolate bars are no longer just a taste of home for the troops. To the people of Europe, they're a symbol of liberation. Before the war, Hershey's chocolate was virtually unknown in Europe, but now, without selling a single bar, Hershey has become famous across the continent. And that's left the Hershey Chocolate Company in a quandary. It's early 1946, and in Hershey's windowless executive offices in Pennsylvania, Percy Staples is heading to a meeting with his top team. He walks down the corridor to the meeting room, pauses to take a deep breath, and enters. The team are already there, sitting around a long conference table. Staples is Hershey's new boss, the man Milton Hershey chose as his successor shortly before his death last October. But he's also an introverted guy who's uncomfortable in large meetings like this. 
He mumbles a hello and takes his seat at the head of the table. Let's, um, start with a report on Europe. One of the team takes up the baton. He's just gotten back from a fact-finding trip there. The potential is huge. Our boys have been sharing their chocolate with Europeans, and now there's big demand for it. There's not much competition, either. The European companies are still recovering and subject to rationing. If we move fast, we could build a strong foothold before Nestle and Cadbury get back on their feet. The head of sales jumps in. Whoa there, we can't even meet demand at home. We need to focus on America. Staples watches quietly as the executives weigh the pros and cons. Then one of them asks the inevitable question. I wonder what Milton would do. The room goes silent. They've been asking themselves that question a lot lately. Trouble is, none of them has a clue how their visionary founder would move forward. As the question hangs unanswered, the executives turn to Staples, waiting to hear what he thinks. Staples sits deep in thought. His top concern at the moment is the price of cacao beans. Since wartime price controls ended, the price has tripled, hitting profits hard. And Staples doesn't want to do anything that endangers profits because those are what support the company's biggest stockholder, the Hershey's School for Orphan Boys. Um, Europe's too risky. Meeting demand here and maintaining profits is the priority. The call's been made. Hershey is going to ignore its new status in Europe. It's a decision that will haunt the company for decades to come. But while Hershey's letting opportunity slip through its fingers, Forrest Mars isn't missing a trick. It's summer 1949, and Bruce Murray's in the restroom at M&M headquarters in Newark, New Jersey. He's washing his hands when he spots a sheet of paper pinned to the back of the door. It's the sales report he gave Forrest Mars this morning, and it's got the word failure scrawled across it in bright red ink. Since becoming Forrest's business partner in 1940, Murray's been leading M&M's sales operation. Things went well at first. He secured big military contracts for the non-melting bite-sized candies. All over the world, service personnel were popping them into their mouths during downtime. But now the war's over. Those contracts are ending. And sales are plunging. Forrest has responded by making Murray's life a living hell. Murray's endured months of tongue lashings in front of his team, but this latest humiliation has pushed him over the edge. Murray rips the sales report from the door and storms out of the restroom. Forrest's at the far end of the open plan office. Murray charges over, shaking with rage, and squares up to Forrest in front of the whole team. What the hell is this? I own 20% of this company. It's time you treated me with some respect. Forrest narrows his eyes. Respect is something you earn, Bruce. When you stop being a failure, I'll stop treating you like one. Murray flips. He lunges at Forrest. As shocked employees watch, the two crash to the floor and start trading blows. Two managers rush over and pull them off each other. Murray shakes free and storms out of the office. Forrest dabs the blood from his lip with a handkerchief and smiles. The next morning, Forrest gives Murray an ultimatum. Go on the road as a company salesman peddling candy to stores, 
or quit. Murray walks. There's no way he's going to spend his life schlepping around the country selling candy for Forrest. Shortly after leaving, Murray sells his stake in the business to Forrest for a million dollars. Forrest may be pleased at having pushed Murray out, but he still needs to revive the tanking sales of M&M's. He tries over and over to refresh the brand. He changes the packaging from cardboard tubes to small paper bags. He starts stamping tiny M's on each candy to guard against copycats. He uses market research to figure out the ideal color mix for each bag of M&M's. And he heaps more and more pressure on his sales team to deliver results. But nothing seems to work. Stumped, he seeks outside help. It's 1954, and in M&M's Newark headquarters, Rosser Reeves is about to present a plan to light a fire under M&M's sales. He typically wears a bow tie and is considered the advertising guru at the Madison Avenue ad agency, Ted Bates. The M&M's executive team is calling a meeting with Reeves in the hopes that he's got a killer idea for them. The good news for you is that our market research tells us kids love M&M's. The bad news is parents, not kids, control the purse strings. You see, it's parents who decide what candy to buy, of course, and today's parents didn't grow up eating M&M's. You need a campaign with a message that wins over parents. So what do you suggest? We tell parents that with M&M's, they no longer need to worry about their kids smearing chocolate all over the furniture. Our suggested slogan is, Melts in your mouth, not in your hand. The M&M's team break into smiles. The slogan sounds perfect. Encouraged, Reeves continues. We also think TV ads that combine the message for parents with animated characters aimed at kids will work best. We're thinking of two characters, actually. One that's a plain chocolate M&M and another based on the new peanut M&M's you're about to launch. Forrest leaps to his feet with a big smile on his face. Yes, yes, this is exactly what we need. Let's do it. Soon after, the campaign hits the nation's TV screens, just as peanut M&M's arrive in stores. I'm one of the M&M's plain chocolate candies. Solid milk chocolate inside and a colorful sugar shell outside. And I'm a delicious peanut. But look what happens to me. First, I'm drenched in creamy milk chocolate. Then covered with a crisp, thin sugar shell. Look for this M on each piece. Try M&M's chocolate candies with peanuts or plain. Remember, M&M's milk chocolate melts in your mouth, not in your hand. The campaign's impact is immediate. After eight years of limping along, demand for M&M's soars. By 1956, it's become one of America's favorite candies with sales of more than $40 million a year. And that's enough to make Hershey take notice. Hershey's normally blasé about the competition, preferring to treat most rivals as potential bulk buyers of its chocolate. But with M&M's raking in millions, Hershey fears it's missing a trick by not making a similar candy of its own. In April 1956, Hershey launches its own answer to M&M's. They're called Hersheyettes, and they're football-shaped chocolates coated in sugar shells. But Hersheyettes struggle. 
The first problem is that the Hershey Chocolate Company doesn't advertise. It never has. From the day he started the company, Milton Hershey refused to run ads for his products, preferring to focus on in-store displays and posters, but with no TV, radio, or print ads for Hershey ads. Few consumers even know they exist. Then, the company discovers that the sugar shells of its new oval-shaped candies turn rock hard after a few months on the shelves. And with Hershey unable to stop M&M's momentum, Forrest's already eyeing his next target, a target he's wanted to get his hands on for almost 30 years, his dad's old company, Mars. It's spring 1963, and in Pennsylvania, Hershey's chief lawyer steps into the office of CEO Samuel Hinkle. Boss, I've just gotten a tip. The Reese Candy Company's looking to sell to British American tobacco. Hinkle's shocked, and he should be. Hershey and Reese go way back. Harry Reese worked for Hershey before founding his company in 1923. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups factory is just a few blocks away, and it uses Hershey chocolate. Hershey even helped Reese survive the Depression in World War II. What? Why haven't they come to us? We should be first on their list if they want to sell. No matter, get me a meeting with them right away. The next day, Hinkle meets Reese's manager, George McLeese, at the offices of a law firm. George, word is Reese is up for sale. McLeese nods. It is. The Reese family feels the business has gotten too big for them to handle, so they're looking for a buyer. You interested? Hinkle most definitely is. Reese's only product, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, are almost unknown outside the mid-Atlantic states. But he thinks they've got untapped potential. They're already outselling Hershey's almond bars in some parts of Pennsylvania. And who knows how much better Reese's Peanut Butter Cups could do if they were sold coast to coast. There's another reason, too. Thanks to Mars, chocolate-coated candies like Snickers and Milky Way are the fastest-growing segment in the candy business. Buying Reese would get Hershey into that category and allow it to challenge Mars head-on. Hinkle clasps his hands together. I am interested, very interested. I also think you'll be better off with us than with British American tobacco. I mean, we've got similar values, we already work together, and you already use our chocolate— So tell me, what's it going to take to get the family to sell to us? McLeese leans back into his chair. I hear you, but what the family wants is a good price. That's the bottom line. What's your offer? Twenty-three million dollars. McLeese smiles. That's more than the Reese's expected. That's a fair offer. Let me talk to the family. The family says, yes. For Hinkle, buying Reese is a relief. Hershey hasn't created a breakout candy since the war, but now it's got a product that can help it counter rivals like Mars and M&M's. But Hinkle's not the only man making deals. It's 1964, and Forrest Mars is visiting his half-sister Patricia at her large home in La Jolla, California. They may share the same father, but they couldn't be more different. While Forrest is all business, 
Patricia prefers spending the big dividends she gets from her stake in Mars. Or at least she did, until she got brain cancer. Now she just wants to secure her children's future before she dies. Patricia knows Forrest hasn't come to see her out of concern. She knows him better than that. He's been after her 41% stake in Mars ever since he returned to the U.S. in 1940. Let me guess. You want my stock? Yes, but listen. Mars is in trouble. Sales have dropped from 50 to 41 million in four years. The company's cutting back on quality, and that's the fastest way to kill a business. You've seen a Snickers recently? It's a joke. The chocolate's so thin I can see through it. Our father made the best damn candy bars in the business, and they're ruining them. If this continues, Mars will go bust. Patricia knows Forrest's right. She also knows that for all his flaws, he's the company's best hope. Okay, I'll give you my shares, but on three conditions. One, you keep the Mars name. I want our family name to endure. Two, I get non-voting stock that pays a guaranteed income so my children can inherit it. Finally, my husband stays CEO. Agreed. Patricia, thank you. Thank you. It's December 1964, and in Chicago, Mars's top executives are waiting nervously in the boardroom. Just minutes ago, they learned that Forrest is now the company's sole owner and that he's just fired Patricia's husband. And now, he wants to see them. The 60-year-old Forrest bursts in, wispy gray hair flapping. He heads to the front of the room and turns to the team. You know, I'm a religious man. The executives are puzzled. They never thought of Forrest having any god other than the almighty dollar. Suddenly, Forrest drops to his knees and clasps his hands together in prayer. Oh, Lord, I pray... I pray for Milky Way. I pray for Snickers. The executives stare open-mouthed at the bizarre sight. And I pray for three musketeers. Amen. Forrest rises to his feet. The executives look at each other, unsure how to respond. They don't have to think long. These products will now consume your lives. Your every waking moment will be dedicated to them. They are the products consumers buy. They are the products that make the profits. And profit is our sole objective. Now, that sounds more like Forrest's altar. In the weeks that follow, a tornado of change sweeps through Mars. Office walls are knocked down, expensive carpets torn up, and oak-paneled walls stripped. The company's art collection and corporate helicopter are sold. Managers who once had private offices find themselves on open-plan floors surrounded by their reports. Memos are banned so that all communication is done face-to-face -face or by phone. Employees are prohibited from having personal items on their desks. Salaries are increased 30% and linked to team performance. A generous bonus scheme is introduced, and 12-hour days become the norm. Snickers, Milky Way, and Three Musketeers 
are restored to their original sizes. And to ensure quality, every factory worker is empowered to halt production if they see anything amiss. By the time Forrest's finished, Mars is a company reborn. It's now a focused, driven army with one mission. Make Hershey history. On the next episode, Mars launches a surprise attack. Hershey tries advertising, and the supermarkets become a battlefront. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. If you like this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe over the cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. We sure hope you'll support our show by supporting them. If you like what you've been listening to, it would be great if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe. There's another way you can support us, and that's by answering a short survey at wondery.com survey. And hey, don't forget to tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. A quick note about the conversations in this episode. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Tristan Donovan wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Emily Frost edited this story. Our editor and producer is Jenny Lauer Beckman. Sound designed by Kyle Randall for Bay Area Sound. Our executive producer is Marshall Louie, created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering. Wondering.